A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. Right, thanks to everyone for the great feedback from last week's episode with Damien Lazarus, where we talked about 20 years of Crosstown. Yeah, some great stories in that episode. So if you haven't checked it, please do so right now. In fact, you could just stop listening to this podcast and go back to last week's episode and get stuck into that before you get stuck into this one. I did mention on last week's show though that this week's episode was going to be just as good. And... I'm pretty sure that it is. It's DJ Bone on the show this week. DJ Bone from Detroit. Although, as we hear during the course of the conversation, there is a lot more to him than just Detroit. He's living in Amsterdam right now, which we also talk about, and he's got a new album out. It's called Further, which I have been listening to over the last week or so, and it's a really great piece of work. Just really awesome techno. So, yeah, highly recommend that as well. I'll stick a link to that in the show notes. I think it's out. or Maybe it's not out yet. But, well, I'll stick a link to the pre-order or whatever, whatever I can find. And, um, yeah, but this is a great conversation talking about lots of different stuff from the state of techno now to how it developed in the really early days of Detroit in the 80s, which is something we haven't really got firsthand before on the show. So that was great. And, yeah, he's just a a really interesting guy. So it was a conversation I really enjoyed this week. And, um, yeah, I think you're going to enjoy it too. So, yes... Right, if you're enjoying what we're doing here on the show, then you can support us on Patreon. That would be really nice of you. It's extremely fairly priced. There's a tier for four US dollars a month, which gets you bonus podcasts. In fact, I did a bonus podcast this week. I'll be doing another one. This is part two of a double header bonus podcast that I'll be recording later today. So yeah, you get that stuff and also the knowledge, obviously, that you're supporting the best podcast out there as well. Um, <laughs> And there's a higher tier called Musicality, which is 10 bucks a month, gets you all of the music that we release on Hot Flush and affiliated labels ahead of time and high quality download format. So that's pretty good as well, right? For 10 bucks a month. In addition to that other stuff too. So yeah, I mean, that's just decent, I think. Really decent. So yeah, if you're 
feeling the need to support the show, then that's the best place to do it. Patreon.com slash scuba official. If you don't want to, if you can't afford it, that's also cool. Completely fine. Understand. Just leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. That really does help the show too. Join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. It's a really great community of people in there. And uh, if you're a Patreon member, actually, there is a private area about Discord, but the main area is just open to everyone. So, yeah, jump up in there. Join the conversation. If you want to ask me anything about the show, if you want to make any requests or whatever, that's the place to do it. And follow the Spotify playlist, which contains much of the music that we talk about in the show. Lots of Detroit techno in there this week. Right, okay. With that, I'm going to shut up. And without further delay, here is DJ Bone. DJ Bone, welcome to the show. How you doing? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We were just uh, talking off mic about your living arrangements. You're in... Is it near Amsterdam or in Amsterdam? It's near Amsterdam. Um, We were in Amsterdam, like right outside city centre for a a few years. And then we needed a little more space for the studio and wanted it a little more quiet. So we moved to this area that's like 15 minutes, maybe at the tops, 20 minutes outside of Amsterdam by car. Very nice. Okay, well, obviously you've been doing events in the city and that's something we're going to talk about. Of course, we're going to talk about the new album, which is kind of, I think, uh, related. In fact, yeah, I think it's definitely related to the events you've been doing. But a few things I wanted to get into first, a few more general uh, questions that I had to kick off. So... <laughs> just wanted to get started. Uh, Movement Detroit was the other week. What's your opinion of that festival generally? Um, personally, um, I, I think it's it's good. It's good for the city. You know, it's it's good for uh, electronic music. I mean, <clears throat> personally, it's not. I'm not happy that it you have they have to charge people now. I was really excited of the the premise of being able to have a free festival, you know, for the city. And I think that's what turned things around is um, it became more of a destination festival for everyone, which is cool. But it started out more like a festival that was for the people who lived there. Almost like they could rediscover, or maybe if they're young, discover for the first time, you know, what Detroit Techno's about and be proud that, you know, it came from Detroit and maybe they didn't know, you know what I mean? But now it's more of a uh, everyone's coming to Detroit type thing, you know, so it's one week in a year. I'd rather have it, you know, if I know people have to make money, times change, you know, I, I completely get it, you know, but I'm just. Uh, was really enamored by the fact that you could go somewhere for free. Your your relatives, all of them could come and see what you're doing and what you've become. And, and then it might fuel the city to be able to do events regularly on a more regular basis throughout the year instead of just having one big weekend a year. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it's almost turning into or almost has turned into like Miami, like Ultra or whatever, you know? It's kind of got that vibe about it now. It, almost like a WMC type vibe without all the panels and <laughs> yeah yeah like every, it's just like the the vibe of of everyone saying yeah we gotta go we gotta go you know it's 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 movement weekend you know we gotta go and you know I, like i said i understand it but i just missed the fact that you could go for free and you know experience that 
but now it's become this this big entity whereas the rest of the year there's you know small parties you know a couple hundred people but nothing of the magnitude of the warehouse parties you know in the 90s you know and that i think that even though the clubs where you could go every week and there were residents you know i think that whole spirit is missing there is that something i mean that's kind of the story of quite a lot of cities in the states so i mean is that something like that was particularly pronounced in how detroit developed after after the 90s yeah i mean i <clears throat> honestly i don't know i mean i think in new york and chicago there's still a lot of the resident mentality you know for clubs even when they open and bring in guests they still want to make sure they have you know some good locals to open up and you know residents but detroit was really heavy on that you know back in the day whether it was shelter st andrews hall um industry and pontiac motor um lush there were all these places <clears throat> where it was you know built around residents music institute was built around residents you know i mean the majestic what blake baxter was built around the fact that he was resident there and that was a nice thing because then it became it made detroit a proving ground so basically any guest that comes in they got to really you know bring their a game because the residents are will blow you off the decks if you don't you know come correct and then you go back to your city with your tail between your legs, you know. But we don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? We don't have that anymore. It's it's not that fierce of a competitive city when it comes to DJs, uh, you know, really in the trenches, grinding it out and, uh, you know, making people think twice before they step in the city to play. Yeah, I mean, that's something which I think is kind of common to the whole scene, right? I think, like, the whole concept of having to like pay your dues as it were and it's like jump through a certain amount of hoops before you're able to um like dj at certain places and dj in a certain to a certain standard i mean one of the things i've talked about on the show quite a lot is how you know how the technology has moved on so it's it's really quite easy just to you know download a bunch of tracks and and play a dj set now and a lot of those kind of barriers to entry which kind of I guess historically, kind of weeded weeded quite a lot of people out who had kind of the wrong, who were coming in into it for the wrong reasons, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult situation because as much as techno is about pushing things forward and advancing the technology and using technology to do be creative, it also sometimes it just plain old lowers the bar. I mean, sometimes it makes it very easy. It's like introducing the microwave into a chef's kitchen. <laughs> yeah right That's you know I mean? yeah. <laughs> so now it, it's not so much about uh the the skills you have as a chef it's about how crafty can you be with this technology that's in there with something that can automatically slice and dice when you have people who've been working on their knife skills and cutting skills for you know years you know at, at the uh, cooking school so it's the same with with djing you know you got mixers with effects you got all these buttons um I see the switch to digital was inevitable. The medium changes, I understand that. But to be able to have a mixer that can quantize, um, loop, and basically sync the records for you, then all you have to do is just show up and know which buttons to push. You know what I mean? It's almost like, I don't know, like automated 
industry for Amazon in the warehouse or when McDonald's decided to take away uh, I remember people were complaining that they felt like a child when they were working at McDonald's and instead of uh, PLUs, you know, codes you push in for an item, they put a picture of a cheeseburger (laughs) or pick, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, this is burger, this is fries, you know they just made it to that point where, you know, if you really don't know what you're doing, you can still do it you know, and granted there are people who have taken this and excelled with skill I don't discount anyone who uses the technology as not having skill, but I can say that most of the people who I would consider who don't have skill use that technology. They don't grind it out and and work on on their own skills and develop, you know, what to do with outside of that mixer or whatever. You should be able to play on almost any mixer with the set of skills you have. Yeah, I mean, I guess the argument against this uh, is that, well, the argument that I've heard put forward to counter these kinds of um these kinds of claims is that really the primary skill of a dj is is picking the records yeah and i'm not sure i completely i don't really buy that to be honest obviously that's an, <laughs> it's obviously an important thing but i to me like the the technique of mixing and transitions and and all the other stuff as, as well which can really kind of raise a DJ set like that that's that's just always been crucial to me anyway you know well I think there's it's like everything else you have a, a a foundation right you have an entry level to me selection and being able to blend two records together or now two tracks together that's the foundation okay that's where you start that's what every DJ should be able to do I don't see that as the pinnacle. Like if I sit there and listen to someone seamlessly blend records together, you know, back to back to back, it's cool. But then the next guy comes on and does that. And the next girl comes on and does that. And the next person. So now I've had eight hours of that. I would like something different. I would like somebody to push it. Okay. We've all, we've all established that we can blend. Now what's next? That's, you know what I mean? So now between that and the fact that, you know, by nature as a DJ, you should never really leave the house unless you have a box full of heat. That's your selector. You know, they say, oh, he picks the best tracks and he knows how to play. That's true. You know what I mean? There are cases where I would rather go see somebody who knows how to play what record next as opposed to them having amazing DJ skills. Honestly, I mean, it's not the end all be all. People think it is for me. They think that it has to be like high impact, like an action movie behind the decks. No, it's not always that. I've seen some DJs who don't, you know, chop it up, who don't, you know, some of my favorite DJs, you know, for instance, like Laurent Garnier doesn't do a lot of chopping and backspins and all that, but he's one of my top five DJs of all time. You know, I'll go see Moody Man any day, any day of the week. You know what I mean? And it could be on Christmas morning and I'll be like, oh, Moody Man's playing. I'll go see him. It's because he sets the tone with his selection and his vibe and it's unmatched. You know, that's how he pushes it forward. You know, so you have all these creative people that can be creative in ways that don't necessarily have to be active with your hands and with, you know, doing tricks. But I also, on the flip side, see people who, as you know, people in the UK will say, take the piss. 
<laughs> and they act, <laughs> and they absolutely stand there, put all the the channel faders up, and use you know hot cue or all these cue points, and will basically play loops, and they're all synced and quantized, so you don't even have to blend. It's just gonna match it for you, and and that's that's just not cool to me, you know. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess like web technology reaches a point where like almost like anyone can do anything and you know obviously the music is the most important thing at a sort of granular level but but like you said it's like you know, i think djing such a kind of wide art form right if i can call it an art form and that's another question but like you know it's it's such a it's such a wide thing and there's so many different ways of doing it right and i feel like the technology is kind of closing off one way and i think maybe that's maybe that's how i feel about it i am i i completely understand i mean i had this one instance it's a good example <clears throat> i was in la and we had a birthday party for my wife you know at the time she was my girlfriend and we had a, a birthday party for her at our house right so we invited a bunch of people over and they came over and I didn't have my records with me at the time because I wasn't fully moved out to L.A. So she had a friend who had a bunch of records, and I just took his records and was playing with those. It was all vinyl. And he goes, looks at her and he goes, man, Bone is killing it. Those records sound great. you know." <laughs> and, then, and, and then she goes, those are your records, dummy. It's like, what? He's like, how come they don't sound like that when I play them? But it was, you know, all stuff that I probably wouldn't even buy. But that's the key. You know, when they say selectors, sometimes, you know, it is great about the selection. But sometimes you can get a DJ who can make almost anything sound good. And that's another skill. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's, that's 100% true. And then also, I think, like, uh, the, the mark of a good DJ is to get people dancing to stuff that they wouldn't normally like as well. Right? Yep, exactly. Something they don't, they really don't know that they like it. And the DJ has to go with their gut and say, okay, it's my job not only to make people move, but to introduce new things. You know, it shouldn't be a long line of people looking side to side as DJs and we all go, okay, is everyone going to step forward at this moment and play this track? Okay, everybody's on it. No, somebody's got to run out in the front and, you know, for better or worse, you know, you're either going to be a hero or you're going to be cannon fodder. But I like that risk. Okay, so next question. I'm getting all the the negative stuff out of the way up the front up the front here. So you've called the uh, new trends of hard techno. You meant you referred to it as devil techno <laughs> in an interview that I read today. Yeah, yeah. Tell me why this stuff is popular. <laughs> what's what's the uh, what are people seeing this year? Um, what I what I what I got from it because at first that's why I had to clarify I, when we first heard it me and my wife, we just kept hearing it more and more, you know, at gigs and, you know, around the city. And we just look at each other and go, what is this devil techno that we keep hearing? <laughs> you know, we didn't have any other way to, to call it because it sounded so evil and so angry. But when I broke it down, you know, like the old bone, the young bone would probably just stay on that and say, man, you know, fuck that, that's devil techno, that's some bullshit, you know. And then try and preach to people what real techno is. And no, and now, you know, as I matured, I figure, okay, I need to try and understand where this is coming from. Because I'm sure people complained about me. I mean, they used to tell me I played too fast, you know, when I would play records. You know, people would come in the motor when I was resident and be like, yeah, bro, you're playing some dope shit, but you're playing it way too fast, you know. 
So I said, okay, let me break it down. So I thought about it and it was logical to me. I said, okay, COVID hit. And before COVID, there weren't, this wasn't the trend. You know, this bang and techno was not, the bang bang techno was not the trend. But what happened was people went into lockdown. So you have young people who are in lockdown, you know, who had just got into the scene and all of a sudden they can't go out anymore. They can't party, they can't dance, they can't DJ. Not to mention that you have a crowd, a scene that doesn't even go by generations anymore. It's almost like half or quarter. You know, people say they have a quarter life crisis now instead of a midlife because the way things evolve and the way that technology is and the internet, it's the same with the scene. The scene doesn't go generational now. It's like quarter. So within those two years, you had a lot of people leave the scene you know, two and a half, three years, leave the scene, decide, okay, I'm going to get married, I'm going to have kids, or I'm just not going to be a raver anymore. I'm too old for this shit, you name it. Then you had these these young people who are 16, 17, and when lockdown was over, they come into the scene, and there are no patriarchs or matriarchs, nobody to welcome them in and kind of discuss with them what the scene is about, about plur or about safety with drugs or about, you know, watching your drink so it doesn't get spiked. There's not a lot of elders at these parties, so it was all kids coming in with their own thing. And they had been locked down for three years, and they were ready to let loose. So it was a bunch of anger and aggression and, you know, of energy that exploded. So I kind of understood the aggression, right? But what I would do instead of telling them it was wrong, I would just talk to them and say, why don't you try to express yourself? So I said, would you try and be more expressive than aggressive? And that's what you can do to turn it from seeming like an angry genre into more of an art art form. No matter what, way, no matter what it sounds like, it could still sound the same, but if you have a uh, a method and a reason for doing it as opposed to I'm just going to play the hardest beats possible for the longest time possible. You know, if you have an objective, then I think it starts to become clearer to people as to why they should consider it or appreciate it or respect it. Yeah. Okay. So this kind of links into another quote that I had written down from a previous interview of yours, which was that, uh, well, you said, I think struggle breeds creativity. And obviously the lockdown period and, and COVID generally was like pretty traumatic for a lot of people, right? And I think partic- particularly like young people, as you said, who oh, yeah. you know, maybe maybe who were like 16, 17 when they were going into it, were like, you know, finishing school and, you know, had uh, you know, two, three years of their youth taken away from them, basically. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, do you think these are, these are conditions which could, I mean, notwithstanding what we've just been talking about with this hard techno <laughs> stuff, do you think these are conditions which could <clears throat> uh, lead to something like really quite exciting creatively? Well, I think it did. I, I, I think it did lead to a lot of creative music. I think it led to a lot of eclectic music, a lot of uh, uh, crossing of genres. You mean people making, sorry, you mean people making music during lockdown there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, people making music during lockdown. Because when it, when, we, even during lockdown, there was like a huge influx of music because people wanted to express themselves. The problem that that I see uh, that came about was <clears throat> the loudest voices in a room are usually the ones that people hear. So when things ba- open back up, it was kind of a, a, a two-part thing. It was one, like I said, the aggression, 
you know, the angst of being locked down. So when things open back up, the loudest people were heard, you know, the most and the furthest. But also during the lockdown, there were a lot of what people were calling plague raves, a lot of illegal parties, and those were mostly young people. So I think that the scene for that harder techno, the bang bang techno, possibly started in that illegal party scene during lockdown. And then when they opened up, it just carried forward and went into the clubs because promoters were like, we lost three years worth of income. What's the most popular thing right now where the most people go that we can do? Because we noticed that here in Amsterdam, a lot of clubs welcomed the promoters that were doing illegal parties and they wanted to give them an opportunity to go legit. So they brought them into the club to do parties and they would sell out every time without a lineup or anything. You know, because they were so used to going to the illegal ones during a lockdown. So it just carried over. Yeah. But I mean, okay, so in terms of like you know, the c- coming out of this period and, you know, people who, who are, um, who've had this as, I guess, a, part, a kind of really important uh, sort of period of their of their youth, as I mentioned, you know, it's kind of like traumatic thing which happened to them. Um, I mean, is it possible that, I mean, one of the things, I, okay, so one of the things I've talked about on the show is how, dance music generally and, and techno perhaps in particular hasn't really gone anywhere in the last 10 years like there's not been a lot of uh sort of groundbreaking uh movements there's not been a lot of boundary pushing and i i guess what i'm getting at is that is that is is there a potential for this to happen now that we've kind of you know we've we've gone through this as i as i mentioned traumatic experience and like and, and oftentimes these kind of things do result in in really great art, you know, where, wherever that may express itself. I mean, could, do you do I mean do you agree with what I've just said? And, and could this happen? Do you think? I think, uh, to be honest, if when I when I speak about it, when I say that uh, a lot of uh, really great music comes out of struggle, I, I mostly am talking about uh, poorer neighborhoods, ghettos, um, <clears throat> you know, projects. You know, council houses, council estates. You get drum and bass. You get techno. You get house music. You get, you know what I mean? So if you look at these predominantly black, predominantly queer uh, genres that, that come out of these environments, that it's from struggle. It's from being beat down. It's from being, you know, considered less than. So it's hard for me to see if a bunch of kids who don't really have to go through the day-to-day life of wondering where their meal is going to come from or working a 60-hour week or, you know, they're just upset because they can't go party or something like that. To me, that's, you know, the equivalent of, you know, some privileged kid saying the struggle is real, you know. <laughs> oh, the struggle is real. <laughs> right. They didn't have the 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 uh, caramel macchiato I, I usually get. The struggle is real, you know, <laughs> as opposed to somebody who's, you know, like got three jobs and two kids and paying rent. They don't own their house. You know, they don't live with their parents. They got to catch the bus. That's the struggle. So I think a lot of people who were struggling during the pandemic, the last thing on their mind was music. And if it was the first thing and they weren't making money off of it, then it became the last thing because they're like, well, now it's a hobby, you know. But I think most of those people weren't necessarily into creating electronic music. You know what I'm saying? Because it's become so commercial 
and the and the face of it is more what people say uns uns techno and EDM that they don't look at it as a black art form when they see it at face value. They don't see you are. They don't see Jeff. You know what I mean? They don't see uh, Derek Carter. You know, when they look at it, they they see the commercial side of it. So they lean more towards soul music. They lean more towards uh, hip hop. You know, so there's a lot of different creative hip hop that came out. A lot of different soul music that came out that was just like phenomenal. You know, even a lot of really eclectic electronic music that came out. But nothing that was more strict in the sense of house and techno. And I think that's why I'm bending more towards, you know, when I say further and, and taking things further. It's it's I'm serious about it. You know, like with this album, it's a mission. And then going forward, it's even more of a mission because I feel like you feel like where's the creativity? Where's the you know, what I mean, you can't just make the same thing 18 times and then say that you're futuristic. You know what I mean? You can't use machines from the 70s and 80s that haven't been, you know, modified and say that that's futuristic. You know, there has to be something that is actually factually new, whether it's your gear, whether it's the way the gear works, you know, it's modified, there's a prototype, something futuristic, you know, the way that you play it, something has to change. You know, I always say that if even with DJing, if you're DJing the same way now that you DJ when you first started, then, you know, technically you haven't really progressed. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. So, okay, I mean, I definitely want to talk about the album. Um, just before we get onto that, let, let me just kind of stick on this point of the kind of people who are doing house and techno, because this is another point that was made, has been made on the show, which is that, as you kind of alluded to, like the, the people who are coming into house and techno now are not from those backgrounds. The image, they're not from the kind of, and I don't know. I mean, is it, I mean, you mentioned that music's become commercialized and there's just a lot of money in the whole thing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the people aspiring to be in it would necessarily be come from these kind of upper middle class backgrounds, which I think they largely are. So, I mean, is this is this a, just a general cultural thing, or I mean, what what explains this? Do you think? Well, it's it's all about the popularity of something. It's it's the speed at which something can move and spread. It's like the virus, for example. COVID spread like wildfire because people travel for any reason. You know, it used to be very difficult to be able to hop on a plane and go somewhere. You know, now you can do it. And you can do it for any reason, and you can do it cheap, right? If it was uh, regulated to the point, not that it should be, but I'm saying if if they said, okay, you can go, but do you really have to? You know what I mean? It was funny watching all these people and the gas prices, you know, for petrol and the gas were up. Everyone was complaining, especially in the U.S. Oh, gas is high and blah, blah, blah. But first thing they did when lockdown was over was drive across country. When the gas prices were still high. So, you know, just because it was a holiday, they decided not to complain. You know, if it's that high and it's worrying you that much, then the holiday shouldn't change the way you feel about it. You know, oh, it's a, it, but it's, you know, this weekend we have to we have to go, you know, because such such weekend we have to be able to drive. You don't have to, you know. So I think it's that thinking of, you know, 
what's necessary? Um, do you really want to do this for a certain reason? Do you want to be a star? You know, do you want to be famous? So everything was local at some point. You know, JIT in Detroit. You know, Ghetto Tech and JIT. Local. You know, um, house music for all intents and purposes. Local in Chicago. But it's, it spread basically from the beginning. It spread through word of mouth and through experience, you know. Now you can kind of sit on the couch and, and Monday morning quarterback a house track you know, from halfway across the world, when before you would have to actually go to that city and find out which club and go to that club and then hope you're there for a certain DJ. You know, you had to you had to really dig into it. And now you can really cherry pick and sit back and just be an observer. And the next day you're an instant expert. So I think what changed is, is just the speed of how everything is so readily available that everybody thinks that they can do everything. Everyone can do a podcast, you know, about true crime. <laughs> Everyone can can start a YouTube cooking channel, you know. It's, and that's if you're not even trained in it or you decided not to put any effort, you just want to put it out there as as if you're the expert on this now. Just because you can. Everybody wants to fly across all over the world just because they can. You know what I mean? So they can get this content you know, they go to Fiji, they go to, you know, all these places. Is it a lifelong dream to go there? Or do you just want to go there and be able to take the sickest picture for content? You know, I think the speed of what of way of which uh, everything travels is kind of the detriment of, of most art. You know, that's why it's different when it comes to, well, it was when it comes to painting. They tried to do it, you know, with these... Uh, digital art yeah <laughs> <laughs> they try you know what i mean but <laughs> yeah right okay okay right. well let's let's talk about the album uh so it's called further and this is coming out of um I, well okay so you did a series of events during lockdown yeah in which you played records and and actually so i was, I was actually listening to the one of the recordings of one earlier today which I'll, I'll stick link in the show notes to that way so you're basically playing stuff and then occasionally you'll drop the volume down and talk about the tune talk about the significance of it and it's almost like a it's almost like a lecture i guess kind of thing so t- tell me about tell me about those events like what i mean presumably this was this was a sit down thing because of the restrictions and stuff right yeah well it just got to the point where we, we just saw so many people and we heard from so many people me and my wife about how down they were that they couldn't go out for one and the restrictions and you know you had people arguing over whether to wear a mask and whether it's a hoax and all this so we figured what better thing to do than to try and bring people together you know with the restrictions but bring them together so they can be on you know on a, a even footing for a, for a day or for a night <clears throat> so we came up with this concept and pitched it to a club here, Radion, and they were closed, you know, because of the restrictions, so they couldn't even open. But they could do it with, you know, uh, spacing and only a certain amount of people. And they have a restaurant in the in the club, a cafe as well. So sometimes they're like, "Well, it's just not worth it to open up because we can't even make enough money to cover costs of the employees." <clears throat> so I came up with the idea for further. And what it is, is I would pick a topic 
and I would do a two-part session on it because everybody had to be distanced. Everybody had to be seated. So the way it was set up, and Radian did an amazing job. They did it in the main room of the club that can hold like 750 people. But we could only allow, I think it was like 75 people. But we were all socially distanced. I was sitting down up on the stage behind the decks. And I would pick a topic, like say uh, Detroit Techno, right? Or Chicago House. And I would take the first, maybe I would pick maybe between 10 or 15 tracks that I really wanted to focus on. And I would do what they call the the lecture or the Professor Bone portion <laughs> of the show. <laughs> and I would speak about each track. I would play it in its entirety and I would speak about it and, you know, the social aspects of it and why, you know, it was important or why it was, you know, hit in Detroit or whatever. And do that for each track. And then after that, I would do like maybe a 30 minute mix on topic. So if it was house music, Chicago house, then I would talk about 15 Chicago tracks and we would have a different visual that would play behind me for each track that coincided with the feeling of the song. Kind of to, to show people that these songs are more than just four, four beats. It's more than just, you know, churning out tracks. It's, there's a, a life behind that. There's an artist behind it, a, a feeling. <clears throat> so to be able to do that, I thought was important, especially for the younger people who are coming into the scene and were, you know, antsy sitting at home. So that was the first part. And the second part of the show would be me doing a mix on topic. <clears throat> it's still seated, you know, and it was cool. So I did that and we did, was it 19 weeks of that? Really? And we had no, no cases of COVID from the shows. Wow, that's good. And it was difficult because people wanted to get up and dance so bad. So, you know, we'd always have to have people sit down and we had not security, but, you know, ushers who were basically, you know, like you have to sit down until people would come up with ways to dance on the couch without getting up. And sometimes the last five, 10 minutes, it would just get out of hand and people are like, you know what? Fuck this. We're up, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but it was, it was such a treat because now not only were they out of the house, they're around people who might necessarily have the same views as them, but they're all getting along. They all are there for one reason, the music. The music is on a loud sound system. So you go home and you feel like you did something that day. You feel like, yeah, I went out. I heard some loud music. I learned something. I had a drink. You know, I supported a club that's, you know, shut down. And so it was a win-win all around, you know, and it was so successful. We, at first, I was doing like, I think it was two or three shows a day. Like every time we did one, I would do like three shows because it's so, so limited. I wanted to get as many people in there as possible, you know. And the tickets would sell so fast that we would have to do an, add another show. But it was good. We did 19 weeks. I did Electro. I did uh, Broken Beats. I did a Disco Night. I did one that was all prints, you know. Really? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> one was all underground resistance. Um, I actually had Dimitri from here in Amsterdam, who used to visit Detroit a, a lot back in the day and come and broke so many records in Detroit. You know, one of the few European DJs who could come and play for an all black crowd in a loft and they would just go off and love it. So I had him come and do a guest spot and uh, sat and interviewed him and talked to him. So, you know, and it, it was really cool. It was, I think it was a good thing for people to have a little bit of escapism and a little fun, you know, during the lockdown. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds sounds awesome, to be honest. So how did this then inform the making of the, the album? Um, what happened was the owners of the club enjoyed it so much and they were so happy with the with the result. You know, people were drinking, they were making money. So they're like, when the lockdown ends, would you guys want to do a night, like a further night? And I was like, yeah, you know, I think that'd be cool. <clears throat> so we started to figure out, you know, my wife and I brainstorm on what we're going to do for the night. And the concept is to basically have a vibe, you know, from beginning to end, like meticulously planned. So the artwork, the flyer, the way that we promote, the the lineups, you know, the way we work the lineups. We wanted it to be almost like if you were to take a, a festival and put it in a club and have nothing but heavy hitters for every set, from first set to the last. That's what we wanted. You know, special special experiences. It could be anything from, you know, when you show up. Like, we have the first... 200 people show up, get a, get a t-shirt for further. And the thinking behind that is that we're going to eventually do a party where everyone has a t-shirt gets in free, you know? So you know, you're loyal when you go to a party early, super early. So we're going to do that. We have popsicles. Sometimes we have fresh fruit, uh, empanadas, you know, it depends, you know, it's just something that you can go there, and instead of saying, you know, when people ask, how was the party? say, oh, man, DJ Bone killed it. He had played a great set. I want him to say the whole night. Man, that whole night was just fire. From beginning to end, no matter what room I was in, everything was dope. That's what we're looking for, you know? And we've been able to pull it off, you know? And the, the club owners thought we were crazy. They're like, you know, the lineup you have here is like four nights worth of a lineup. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like we know but this is the goal and as far as it pertains to the album I just carried it through because I, I was doing a trilogy of albums before and the name Further was always going to be the name of the album the third album because I did uh, I did A Piece of Beyond I did Beyond and then Further and it was basically me uh, moving forward and, and getting to a place where I, I don't want to be known as just DJ Bone from Detroit I want to, you know, not have to use the crutch of Detroit for the rest of my life. It's always going to be there. It's a part of me. So it's, you know what I mean? It's almost like an unspoken thing. So is this, are you shutting the label? Because the label is called Subject Detroit, which is your label, which you've released on forever, right? Is this is this part of that? Yeah. So the end of the trilogy, which is the album further, is the last release on Subject Detroit. Right. Okay. And then from there, I'm going to start up the new label, which is going to be called Further. It's kind of confusing because Further is the album, which is coming out on Subject Detroit, but Subject Detroit is going to end so I can start Further. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's like a catch-22. But I think it's important. You know, it's not me leaving Detroit in the dust or trying to, you know, dismiss it. It's just saying I don't want to be pigeonholed as just a Detroit guy, you know? And it happens a lot to the point, and you know, for better or worse, a lot of people from Detroit bank on that. They they want everyone to say, you know, such and such, Detroit this, Detroit that. And it's not just because they're proud, it's because without that branding, they might not be as popular. You know, be honest. There's a lot of guys who just don't need it. Like when you mention Jeff, you know he's from Detroit. But he doesn't have to run around and say, I'm from Detroit and wear a Detroit hat and shirt and tie and, you know what I mean? 
it's it's a given, you know, and then that's why I want to be in that place where people know that my history and they accept it and they don't hold me to just being that, you know. So further is a way for me to break out and to be more eclectic and to even break free of a lot of uh, restraints when it comes to techno in general. You know, it can be acoustic. It can be poetry. It can be anything, you know, it's just breaking out of that mold. And I think it's really important. It's really, really important. So how much is, I mean, obviously Detroit is, um, I mean, is it something which you're closely associated with? And obviously the place is, you know, just this kind of, you know, monolith in the culture. Like how, I mean, how much is it? I mean, the way you talk about it, there, it sort of suggests maybe that you find it a little bit oppressive in in your sort of creative process. I mean, how much is that true? Well, it's it's not oppressive, but it's basically when people reduce me down. Like if I read what they're using to promote parties with, put it this way: imagine if every time Rolando DJ they put on the flyer "Knights of the Jaguar," you know what I mean? eventually he'd probably get sick of it. He might not, but eventually he might go, okay, it would be nice if you guys could just put DJ Rolando and not have to push me as Knights of the... You know what I mean? So I I just see that. And like when they say, oh, the the vinyl technician, DJ Bone, I don't play that much vinyl anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I do, but I don't play it the majority of the time. And, you know, so for them to promote me that way, then they're kind of pigeonholing me. Same with the Detroit thing. You know, the Detroit veteran, the Detroit this, 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 that's pushing you as a historical figure, you know? Right, sure. Like a kind of legacy act, right? Exactly. It's a legacy booking. And I don't want to be that. I, you know, I'm the guy who shows up and, and whoever is playing before or after me better bring their A game because I'm ready to just set that place on fire. And, you know, and I can move faster than 90% of those DJs anyway who are half my age. So why would I want to be considered as OG or legend or old school? You know, I'm current and beyond. You know, I'm I'm here now just tearing up clubs at a rate where these kids can't even fathom the creativity of what can happen. Yeah, I mean, at some point it feels almost a little bit condescending, you know, when people have that kind of, you know, have that kind of... Uh, tag attached to them right yeah it starts to feel that way you start to get that that you know complex of you know i'm not here just to be the legacy booking quota you know uh i'm here to 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 wreck this shit you know and then it happens because then you see sometimes the promoters or the crowd or something they're like in shock by the end of my set and then they come up and want to talk and i'm like you guys are what why are you not up on this before i even get here and I know why. Yeah, we saw what did you expect, right? <laughs> exactly. They expected a OG vinyl technician from Detroit, <laughs> probably wearing a bunch of Detroit gear. You know what I mean? That's what. That's how I'm being pigeonholed. So I'm like, okay, no more. They need to see some true futuristic, you know, innovative things and see it for what it is. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's cool to me if people don't even know I'm from Detroit, just because they'll be open and honest about why they enjoy what I did. Man, that was dope. Blah blah blah. Where are you from? That's that's a compliment to me. Instead of somebody coming up and being fake and going, "Oh man, I love Detroit." You know, Detroit this, Detroit that. You know, that's. I'd rather they come up and just express that they liked it 
if they don't know where I came from, as opposed to just trying to be on a Detroit bandwagon. Okay, well, I mean, I've got a whole load of questions about Detroit, so I'm afraid we're going to be talking about it a bit. <laughs> no, it's, it's cool. It's cool. Okay, but, but before we get onto that stuff, I just want to ask you a little bit about making the album, uh, like technically, like what what what's your studio setup like? Right now in, in Amsterdam, in Holland, it's a lot less gear. I have two studios in the U.S. And I didn't bring a ton of my gear with me only because, like I was saying, I got to practice what I preach. And I want to bring a bunch of old gear into a new mindset. So I brought my newest gear. I sequence most of everything in Ableton because it allows me to be super creative and on the fly. Kind of like when I mix, I like to be on the fly. Um, and then I started to... to amass like the newer tech here you know whether it's controllers or keyboards or you know uh making beats through a certain method uh so now it's a completely different setup when i go back to the states and i get in the studio i'm kind of lost you know because i'm like midi what the fuck you know (laughs) (laughs) you know i'm looking at all this midi and i'm like trying to figure out where something's not right it's a totally different mentality isn't it using that kind of setup but i mean it's so different but i i don't regret any of it you know i don't regret all those those years of trying to figure out why my gear is not acting right and i have to basically unplug and replug and unplug you know, all this gear, because it taught me so much about how things work. And it, it lets me know how easy things are now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we've, I mean, uh, a phenomenon of making music that we've talked about a fair bit on the show probably previously has been how useful it can be to have constraints. And if you're limited to a certain few bits of gear, actually, that can be really useful in terms of like thinking of you know being forced to kind of think around things and you come up with stuff which you wouldn't necessarily have done if you had you know a kind of the world of possibilities that you can that you know can be at your fingertips when you're using software or using you know newer stuff i mean does that resonate with you and how do you um yeah i mean how do you try and build in constraints to your setup now to try and get to those kind of uh places yeah definitely i used to do that even with my studios in the U.S. in Detroit and in uh, Louisville, in our house in Louisville and Kentucky, I would have a ton of gear, but then I would only use a certain amount of the gear. And then after a session of recording, you know, a certain amount of music or whatever, and I felt like it was time, I would switch out pieces of gear. I would switch out like four or five pieces and then just rebuild the studio basically with other gear. And it's funny because it actually worked because there's a lot of times where people would hear a track, a lot of DJs too that I know and I play with them, and they would go, what is that? Is that you? And I'm like, and there's some unreleased shit, and I'm like, I made this on a completely different setup than I did my previous stuff, but yet they they can tell it's me, you know, so I must have some kind of vibe that comes through. So that lets me know that I can switch out gear and it's going to be okay. You know, but yeah, I I see that I do it here big time. I limit myself because I'm more about I love the technology of being able to record music now as much as I love uh, people who can play the keyboard, who can play live instruments. If I'm the kind of person who if I can't do it that well, I'd rather go find someone like I can't play the saxophone. But if I really think I need a saxophone, I'm not going to fake it. I'm going to go find a really good saxophone player. 
You know what I mean? Like I can make techno, I can make house, I can I can do it. If I want to make a jazz album, I'm not going to sit in there and pretend like I can make jazz. You know, I would figure out my contribution to it. And then I would surround myself with true musicians and not weigh them down because I don't want to be the weak link. If I'm putting together a project and I'm a weak link in that, then I wouldn't do the project. You know what I mean? Why would I bring a jazz trio in and then I show up with like a, a cowbell and I'm <laughs> then what's the point? You know, they don't really need me. You know, I need them. So I limit what I do. I make it more about the sounds. So what I did before we even moved to to Netherlands uh, for most of the year, I was concentrated for like seven, eight years on creating my own sound banks sampling real sounds, uh, tweaking them. I made a whole drum kit out of water, water drums, just sounds that you can't find readily, you know, as presets. So when you do hear a track and it sounds different, it hits your, your ear and you're like, the rhythm is dope. It's not a regular 909, you know, I like that. So I'm all about having these obscure sounds. So my limitation for gear is easy. The hard part is for me to limit what sound banks I'm trying to utilize because I have so much, you know, I have like at least 10 or 12 external drives of sound banks, you know, terabytes and terabytes. And it's just me going, okay, which ones do I? So instead of switching out pieces of gear, I just basically switch out my sound banks. Yeah. I'm hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In that doing that kind of work is, um, it's so valuable. And it's it can be, well, what I find actually is that uh, trying to get up to do that kind of stuff. It's kind of thing, oh, yeah, I know I've got to do it, I know I've got to do it. And you kind of like wade your way through it. And But when it's done, it's it's just, you know, it's so valuable. It's such a great resource to have built. And when I'm starting, when I'm starting a project, I'll spend a couple of days just doing that. And you kind of amass the kind of like palette that you're going to be, you know, you're going to be working from. And yeah, it's it's just a great process to go through. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a very cathartic, and, and very fulfilling, you know, process. I, I love it. I mean, I really do. It's to that point where I look and I see these people posting content and you see a studio and it's full of gear. I mean, full with like 90, 100 pieces of gear. And then you hear what they're making. And I'm like, Bruh. <laughs> right, and they could have done it with with Ableton, right? <laughs> I'm like, that's like two, that's like two sounds. <laughs> you got all this gear. <laughs> 
So, okay, we talked about the label and the majority of the stuff that you've released has been on, on that label, right? Is, is it all of it or was certainly the vast majority? Uh, I'd say 99% of what I've released, maybe like 95. I did one album uh, on a different label before under a different name, different, different, you know, and I did a couple of DJ Bone uh, EPs, like maybe four or five for other labels including the Metroplex. But other than that, everything else has been on Subject Detroit. Yeah, and this is going back to the mid-90s, right? The first release, I think, was 95, 96, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So there was a great there was a great story you told in, in a previous interview about the start of Juno Records and getting uh, contact. <laughs> tell, tell that story. It's, it's amazing. Well, long story short, it's, it's really cool. I was contacted. My first vinyl release, right? Uh, I wanted to State of Techno was kind of in a weird position at the time I think it was like 94 and I was like 93, 94 and I was like you know what I'm going to try and make the kind of music I want to play you know because I'm not really hearing it so I started making music then I decided okay now I'm going to release this music I think it was 95 but the thing is I didn't want it to sell just because it was, you know, DJ Bone, you know? So the label is Subject Detroit, but I didn't want people to be like, yeah, you know, we, we're going to buy it because it's Bone. I wanted to see, basically, how a record would sell when nobody knew who made it. So I just put, you know, SUB001. It's like the, the producer. And I released it, and I started doing all the things that I thought record labels were supposed to do. It was a lot of trial and error. You know, I spoke to Matt Mike about a few things and some tips. and But what I came up with was, okay, uh, I got to get promos out so I can get some feedback. And so I'm mailing out all these white labels and all this. And then I get some reviews and I get, you know, some really good feedback. So what I did is I took, I had faxed um, distributors trying to get them to buy the record. And nobody, nobody wanted to buy it. Nobody. So what I did, I took all the reviews and when it was like record of the week or record of the month, you know, and then I took them, cut them out, put them all on one page and then photocopied it. Then I faxed that through to the distributors like a week later. Next thing you know, all these orders started coming through. (laughs) Right, there you go. (laughs) So right there, I knew how the game was. I was like, oh, really? But I couldn't believe it. But then I got... Uh, email or a fax from uh, Juno and this guy has started this this uh, <laughs> record shop online from his flat in, in London right in the UK and first thing I thought was who in the hell is going to buy records online <laughs> like this is the wackest idea I've ever heard so he's like hey you know I started this thing it's called Juno and I'm going to be selling vinyl online, mail order, and I want to buy some vinyl from you. And I was like, well, if you want to buy, you know, I'm selling. So, okay. So I think he took like 100 or 200 copies. I think it might have been 200 copies. And I'm thinking, you know, this guy's taking a risk. Because usually you send it to the distributor. They send it through to the shops. And then you might have some returns. And they say, oh... You know, it didn't sell, so we have to ship these back to you, and then you got to wait 90 days to get paid at the earliest. So it was a big process. He ordered 200 copies, 
and then asked me to send him an invoice. So I sent him an invoice. He paid me the next day before I even shipped it. <laughs> I mean, that's that's unheard of, right? Completely unheard of. Like we've we've, we've talked about distributors a lot on the show and how bad <laughs> they can be. Like that's like getting paid up front is just like hallelujah, right? Right. I was like, what kind of scam? I was like, this is like something's not right. I was like, either this guy is not really savvy or he's a genius, you know? <laughs> and then he told me, he he broke it down. He said, okay, since we're not going to be going through a distributor, I'm going to give you a, a dollar more per record. So we cut out, you know, because if you sell it to the distributor, you would sell it for this amount. Since we're not using the distributor, you're doing it basically direct to the store. This is what I would normally buy records for. So um, this is what, you know. I was like, okay, so now you're offering to give me more money. And then he turned around and paid me the next day. I was like, what? And that was, I thought, was like the pinnacle. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, that was cool while it lasted. But when this guy can't sell these 200 records, then what? You know, I was like, you already paid me, bro. So now (laughs) he hits me back with another fax. And he goes, I need another 300. And I was like, (laughs) so he had sold these copies so fast. And needed more. And I was just in awe. I was like, you got to be kidding me. And it's funny because from that moment, you know, from the time he started Juno, and it's grown into what it is today, I've I've been associated with Juno. I've known him. I've known his company. I've seen it grow. His employees, um, the mainstays there. And it's turned into this really, really cool relationship, you know, with Juno that still goes on to this day. So I, I I will never lose respect because I saw how he grew this. People always say, oh, Juno, you know, killed vinyl. They're like the, uh, you know, they killed record shops. They're like the Walmart or Amazon, you know, of techno. I'm like, nope. I'm like, you better check his history. He started out, you know, really humble, really meager, humble beginnings and grew, just straight up grew this company into a Goliath, you know? Oh, I have so much respect for that, you know? Yeah, totally. Okay, so right, so we were back in in Detroit there in the in the mid nineties. I, I wanted to yeah dig into this a little bit um, in terms of how you got started. You, uh, I believe you graduated high school in eighty eight. Yep, is that correct? Yeah, Cast Tech. I think that's the se- Yeah, right. That's the same. Is that the same year that Music Institute started? Uh, I think it was eighty eight because I know I was going right out of high school, so. It might have been the year before, but I think it was 88. So, okay. Can you describe Music Institute to those of us who didn't have the pleasure of going there? It was simple. It's in a small building. And then you have this one main room, right? And you have an upstairs. But the upstairs is a chill-out area with a few couches. And then it has windows in the upstairs. Downstairs is completely windowless, pitch black. Only one or two strobe lights, right? So you can't see anything all you can see is a little bit of light behind the bar and then you can see up because the dj booth was upstairs so you could see the light coming out of the dj booth so it wasn't really at that time it wasn't about watching the dj up close and seeing what they're doing and it was about coming in they didn't they didn't even sell alcohol they sold juice yeah there was no alcohol there soda and juice so you come in it's dark you had to have a membership so that way the police wouldn't mess with them so you get your membership card and it's, it's you know, a private party at that point. And I would get, I'd have to sneak in or bribe somebody because I was too young to go. 
and it would start really late. It would start after hours. So you go and it might start at either midnight or like two in the morning, you know, when the clubs usually let out at two and go till the sun comes up. And it was so dope because it wasn't about looking at people. It wasn't visual. You didn't care what people were wearing. You didn't care if they were gay, straight, what race, what color. You didn't care. You know, you weren't worried about, oh, look at those those shoes. Those are dope. Because you wouldn't even see anybody. You would have to feel your way around. You would just catch snapshots because of the strobe lights, you know. And there's just that pulsing music. And it was so dope because you were there and you would hear this music you never heard before, for one. So as you go back each week, you would hear new music. So it got to the point where every week you want to hear your staples, like your favorite tracks that were like MI tracks, you know, like uh, Voodoo Ray, Blow Your House Down. I'm going to dish you right now, 100% dishing you. But then you would wait and then you might hear something break like Yeke Yeke or Lil Lewis French Kiss. And you're like, this is crazy. What is this? You know, so it was really cool. You had Alta Miller, you had uh, D-Win, Derek May, and they would be there just rocking it and you would just dance your ass off forever until the sun comes up and then most of the people who are left will go upstairs and just watch the sun rise through the windows in the front and then you go home and it was like church for us it was such a spiritual experience i mean there's so many tracks you know that's why i learned about everything honestly that was my school I learned about Todd Terry. I learned about Lil Lewis. I learned about most of the really underground Chicago house. Um, Between there and like this other club heaven with Ken Collier. It was just the most amazing shit, you know. And then I would hear Detroit records that I didn't know were Detroit records. Like Blake Baxter when we used to play, you know, or uh, Clear or R9. I didn't know. Amazon, first time I heard Amazon was was in Music Institute from UR, from Underground Resistance. Most beautiful song I'd ever heard. So much power, but so much beauty. And it blew me away. And I had no idea. And then I finally started to track down who Underground Resistance was. And, you know, it was just the best. It was the best. Yeah, I mean, you're, <laughs> let, me, let me ask you, because you, you're 18, 19 in the, at this period, right? You're a kid, basically. Yeah, I was, I was 17, 17, 18. Okay, so, so what, what led you to, like, going there in the first place? Um, I was lucky enough to have uh, a really good friend who used to cut my hair. His name is Pete. We call him Sneaky Pete. And he was like... Uh, for me and my friends, he was like our barber. So instead of going to a barber shop, we'd go to Pete's house in the basement and he would cut hair for like five bucks, you know, 10 bucks. And it was cool because <laughs> it was funny because like his, he lived at his mom's house, of course, because we were all young. But his mom would like bring down snacks and drinks and he's cutting hair and then he's got, uh, he had saved up his money from cutting hair and bought some turntables and a mixer. So he would always have like all this house music playing and, and techno playing. So that's where I started to get the bug. And then he was telling me, he was like, and I would hear it on the radio all the time with the, the midday mix uh, with Claude on the radio or Derek or uh, Jeff, the wizard. So Pete was like, yeah, he's like, there's all this uh, new stuff. Blah, blah, blah. He's like, but there's this club 
And he was the one who told me about the Music Institute. He's like, we got to go. You know, you got to check it out. And so he's the one who introduced me uh, with Sneaky Pete. And then after that, we ended up with a whole crew of people and we just go every week. And what was your interest in music like prior to that? As, as a kid growing up, like what was your like interest in it? Like, was it something that you were totally into from an early age? Yeah, yeah. I was always into music. Uh, I mean, since from the from since I can remember, I was so into music that I would actually beg my mom to get the Disney records. Right. And it wouldn't be. <laughs> it's so funny because she thought I meant like Peter Pan and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and and I was like, no, no, there's these other ones. So she found them, and it was. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Disney. Yeah, and it would have uh, narrations of like Batman's style. It was Batman and these other superheroes and they would narrate the story and you could listen to it. And it was Batman versus Man Bat and all this other stuff and it would narrate it and then you would hear the characters speak and it had this really eerie background music. So I liked the narration and I liked the, the background music of it, the soundtrack, if you will. So from that point, and I'm a kid, you know, so I'm listening to that. I'm listening to... Uh, the Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack on vinyl. And then my dad had a reel-to-reel, so I'm listening to the Drifters, like, almost every other day. You know, I'm singing a Drifter song under the boardwalk or, you know. Uh, it was it was endless because my parents were the type who would listen to music a lot, and it was always not just listening. It was situational. You know, when my dad sat me down one day, because I, I had an uncle who was addicted to drugs, right? And I I was so young that it was hard for them to explain it to me. So he sat me down and told me. And then he played uh, Gil Scott Heron's uh, track, Angel Dust, where he talks about someone who's addicted to drugs. And they, they called it Angel Dust and how he might die. and And then, you know... He was pleading, you know, to people not to do it and all this. And my dad was like, do you understand what I'm trying to tell? I was like, yeah. So it was educational for me as well. So did you live in the city? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Detroit all my life. I mean, it's funny because I can't technically say I was born in Detroit. And people are like, what? You weren't born and raised? Because people say born and raised in Detroit, right? And they always say it. I know people who are born in Ann Arbor or Mount Clemens, and they say born and raised in Detroit. But... I was in Detroit from, I think, when I was three months old up until 2002. So, you know, I missed the first three months of my life. I wasn't in Detroit. And that's because my dad was in the Air Force and he was stationed in uh, New Mexico. So when my mom had me, we were living on base with him and she had me. And then three months later, they had to fly me back to Detroit so because the family's like, you better bring that baby, you know, because they all wanted to meet me. So we flew back to Detroit. So I was three months old from then up until when I left, you know, I was so I technically I wasn't born in Detroit, but I mean, you can't get any closer than that. Right. So like this period, the period of like your youth, I guess, kind of coincides with like you know, the industrialization and the kind of wider sort of, I guess, decline of the Midwest generally, but Detroit in particular, I guess. So, I mean, how much were you, as a kid, um, 
and obviously this this is a really kind of key part of you know the development of the culture and, and techno and you know the dance culture as well but like, I mean as a kid I mean obviously when you're young you don't really understand that kind of stuff but like at what point did that stuff become I guess present in your your mind well it was there from for like I don't know I guess as soon as I understood you know what people were saying to me you know what I mean once I could put sentences together and and understand because you you see these scenarios and you see uh I think it has a lot to do with why now instead of like when I say genres and I tell people I'm I'm not really technically playing techno or when I make music I'm not making techno I'm making uh it's a feeling it's a vibe you know it's more about how it makes someone feel or how I feel so as a kid I could read that like the look on someone's face their body language etc whether they meant good or harm or you know so you as, even as a kid you have to be careful you're a little kid out riding your bike and uh, one of the first things after your parents teach you how to ride your bike is to make sure you watch out for strangers who are trying to kidnap you you know what i mean because there would be these people who would drive up in a van and try and lure you into the van and you know, try and give you candy or ice cream or lie to you and say, you know, your mom said you got to come with us. And it was it was a everyday thing for most kids growing up in Detroit it was danger. So we're hyper. Most Detroiters, if you grew up in Detroit, if you truly grew up in Detroit, you're hyper alert. You're, you're hyper alert to your surroundings. Your head's always on the swivel. You know, what I mean, as a kid, I spent uh, New Year's Eve at home and you know, I'm like seven years old six seven years old and my mom would have us you know lie on the ground and use our coloring books me and my sister or we play a board game laying on the ground and i'm wondering why and the reason is because on new year's eve in detroit people shoot their guns up in the air and when those bullets go up they got to come down somewhere and she didn't want a stray bullet to come through the window and hit one of us so here we are on the ground for new year's eve and i'm six years old so I was really hypersensitive about my surroundings, you know, and it started to transition into the music, too. So whenever I heard a song that I liked, I would really listen to it. So I was trying to take it all in. And then I would watch the new dance show. I would listen to The Wizard. Even before The Wizard, Electrifying Mojo, it was like music. I had music school every night in Detroit, basically just listening to the radio. I guess... I mean, it's sort of the sort of other question or sort of peripheral questions that would be like, did you at what point did you have a sense that it was different to other places in in that respect or in other respects? I didn't for the most part. I mean, honestly, I mean, until because if you I, I kind of did, but I, I don't know, like as a kid, my parents are really good at uh, taking us out of that situation for the summer sometimes. Like we would do almost every summer we would have a cross country road trip where we would pile up in the van and we would drive, you know, across country to my uncle in Oklahoma. He had a farm or, you know, some relatives, you know, out in Colorado. And it was cool because I got to see the country, you know, and I got to see different things besides concrete and, and tall trees and buildings. It was cool. You know, I saw Red Rock. And I saw all this stuff and flat plains and mountains. I was like, this is crazy. So it was educational as well, just by looking out the window to see that things can be different. 
But the downside is I also experience how things can be different by the way we're treated, you know, with racism, by, by leaving a major city that's predominantly black and then going across country. You know, the, for instance, the, the, the first rule is that whenever we would drive across country, we had two guns in the car. We had a, we straight up, we had a pistol in the glove box and we had a rifle in the back. Now, if we were to get pulled over, he had permits, it was legal. He could legally drive with these firearms as long as the ammunition is separate from the firearm. And he could always say, I have these because I hunt, you know, we're going out to Colorado. We're going to hit some woods. We're going to go hunting, blah, blah, blah. But they were for protection. Was your father in the Air Force like throughout your childhood? Was he? Uh... No, he had finished early. I think he finished when he was young. He didn't serve long in the Air Force. He didn't serve long in the Air Force. But because uh, I remember after that, when we were living, uh, when we left my, we were living with my grandmother. When we came back after I was born, we were living in my grandparents' house. And then I remember when my parents got their first house. I remember he started working for a Chrysler for the auto industry. So he was working in the plant, working on the line. And that's what I remember the most, because I don't remember his Air Force days. I was so little, you know. But, uh, yeah, he's, I mean, he shot, he taught me and my sister how to shoot a gun when we were probably, man, nine, ten years old. <laughs> really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then they, the first rule was respect the the weapon. Second rule was never touch this fucking weapon. <laughs> They're like, yeah, unless okay. unless somebody's life is in danger or unless me and your mother look you in the eye and say, get the gun, you do not touch it. That was the rule. Yeah, but if we ever needed to use it, then he wanted us to know how to use it so we wouldn't hurt ourselves or someone else, you know, uh, someone else, you know, like our family. Yeah, that, I mean it's it's a, it's a it's a tough weird, you know, life. But that's honestly that's the norm for Detroit people. I mean, look at me. My parents drove us across country. I didn't fly until I was probably like uh 20. I think I flew for the first time when I was 20 years old. But most of the friends I had, they didn't even get to drive cross country for the summer. You know what I mean? They couldn't afford to. So I was, even though it seems kind of weird or, you know, crazy, I was still lucky, you know, compared to my friends. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, Detroit is, well, I mean, I think like inner cities in the States are, I think particularly in that period as well, I think it's, a, I mean, obviously there are still really serious problems with, with poverty and with inequality in the United States. But I think looking at it from a European perspective, it can, um, I don't know, it, it's, Whenever I go to an American city, I'm always shocked. Basically, it's just it always happens. Like, and I guess Detroit is an extreme example of yeah, even in that context, right? Oh yeah, it is. I mean, I've seen it change so many times. You know, I mean, when I went to high school, I didn't go to usually go to your local uh, neighborhood high school, but they had two public schools in Detroit that were uh, college prep schools. And you had to take a test to get into these schools. So I took a test and got into Gas Tech, which was downtown. So I had to catch the bus like 45 minutes to an hour just to get to school. And 
it was cool because it was a college prep school. It's an amazing school. It was advanced. You know, this the alumni list from that, if you ever get a chance and just Google Cass Tech uh, High School alumni, it's, it's a who's who, you know, of, of artists, you know, that goes back to the Motown days. And even up to, like, Aaliyah went to Cass Tech. Um, Big Sean went to Cass, went to Cass Tech. So it was a, a really amazing school but the neighborhood around it was crazy like when you leave school if you go one block over it's this area it's not there anymore the same it's it's been gentrified but it was called cast corridor and it was all like homeless people prostitutes drug addicts drunks you know and that's right around the corner from your high school so you got to catch the bus home you might have to walk through there you know to get to your bus stop yeah totally so Okay, back to Music Institute. What what area was that in? Um, I'd have to say it was the late '80s. Um, that the music, the MI, yeah. So, but what area? What area of the city, though? It was downtown. It was straight up in the middle of downtown, um, at, uh, on Broadway. You had the original, and you had the. It closed for a while, and then you, they tried to reopen it. So you had thirteen fifteen, and you had fifteen fifteen Broadway, and it was right in the heart of downtown. Like, seriously. So you had to go, you know, down there to get into the club. But it was uh, it was the best, man. Seriously. And to this day, I, I, I get more goosebumps thinking about the, the Music Institute than I do with a lot of parties that I go to nowadays. Right. Okay, so how do you then get from there to, to DJing? Like, at what point did it did it that's become something that you wanted to do, like in a in a serious kind of a way? Well, it was it was based around the music because the music was so interesting that I had to find it. You know, I was like, man, I gotta find some of these songs, and the only way I could find them was to go to the record shops because they were all on vinyl. Back in those days, you know, there wasn't they weren't popular enough to be on the cassette single or, you know, if the cassette single had started, then I don't know. But it was all vinyl. So I went to the vinyl shop. I went to Record Time. I went to Buy Right. I went to Chauncey's, you know, even in high school, I was going, you know, towards the last year of high school or my second to last. There was a place downtown called Records for You. And I would go down there and check out records. And I just started building up my vinyl because I knew that was the only way I'd be able to listen to these tracks at home. And then I bought like a cheap, a really cheap belt drive techniques turntable, right? And then my cousin bought me another one and then he stole a mixer from Radio Shack. And it was a weird mixer where you had to, it didn't have a fader. It just had like a switch you would click over from one to the channel to the other. And I would use those and I would make my own mixtapes because I wanted to be able to listen to this in its entirety instead of getting up every two minutes to change the record. And that's how I started mixing. And then, okay, so that's like, you know, making mixtapes at home to playing in the club is a is a big jump. Like how, I mean, at what point did you, I'm just thinking, thinking about like, you know, your, your sort of relationship with the scene, I suppose, in your own head as much as anything else. Like at what point did you, did it become an ambition, I guess, to be playing in, in this kind of environment? It it started when, because I was making these mixtapes and I would have friends who would come over and say, man, you know, can I get a mix? Can I get a mix? So I was like, cool. So I'd give them a mix or I'd, you know, make a copy of the tape. And then it just ended up being a business because people wanted so many mixes. So I'd just sell a mixtape 
and I had a, just a stack of them, you know. And I never had to go anywhere to sell them. People would always call me, you know. And then I just meet them somewhere, or next time I see them, give them the mix. And then uh, Thomas Barnett, who made nude photo with Derek May, he had one of my mixtapes, and he knew a guy who was trying to do a uh, night at this club downtown called Shelter, and it was called Love Club. It was the name of the night. And uh, he was looking for a resident DJ. So Thomas gave him my mixtape. And he was like, yeah, you should check this out. So the guy was like, yeah, can you ask Bone if he'd come and, you know, play on Saturday night, you know, and maybe play some house and techno. So you were already called, sorry, let me ask you, were you already called DJ Bone at this point? Yeah, yep. Yeah, it was a nickname that I got early on from my friends. And when I was younger, I'd say like maybe when I was like 14, they called me Bone. Not DJ Bone, but just Bone. And then when I started DJing, I figured, why not just put DJ in front of my nickname? So Thomas gave him the tape, and then he said, yeah, can you ask him to come through? So I did, and I played, and uh, the promoter liked it, you know? And he was like, yeah, next next time when you come, uh, I need somebody who can play some hip-hop, you know, and maybe some more house. You know, would you be able to bring a friend or you know somebody? I was like, oh, yeah. So I just showed up the next time with more records. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> so I was playing hip hop, I was playing house, I was playing techno. Yeah, I would play like two, three hours sometimes, you know, in the club. And what kind of, just going back to like the, the setup there, you mentioned you got these like dodgy belt drive turntables at home. Like, what was it? Was it, was the, the setup in the club that you were going to, at a shelter? Um, and was it proper 1210s and all that stuff? Yeah, they were proper. It was before the 1210s even came out. Over oh, 1200s, right? Yeah. They would have to actually open up the 1200s and then click this switch and make it go plus minus 16. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I went in the club and it was a proper setup. You know, the 1200s, the mixer, like a new mark, or I was like, this is crazy monitors right there at head level you know so it was it was like for me after what i practiced on it was like cheating i was like this is easy <laughs> right. you know and then some nights the monitor would be blown or the deck wouldn't work properly and they're like oh this isn't working i'm like that's eh, okay you know i'll manage so i could play with no monitors i could play with the fucked up needle you name it i knew how to fix everything okay actually that's some that's that's a story that I read about you with the um with Lauren, Lauren Garnier came over and was impressed with your ability to mix with these monitors which were weren't working at all, right? <laughs> yeah, same and the same for him. I was I was like it was weird because I had it was at the place where I'm telling you about they had an anniversary party. And I hadn't played there in years, you know. It was, I it ended on bad terms with them, you know, with the owner. But um they were having an anniversary party and they were like, yeah, we, we, we really want you to come back and play. And I was like, okay. So I went and they had three rooms open, three levels. And I'm playing in this room and the first, the two DJs before me, they, they were just like struggling and I couldn't understand why. And then like Kenny Larkin came in front of me and he was like playing and he played a few records and he just turned around and he goes, man, if you want to go on, you can go on now. He goes, I can't play like this. The monitors don't work. This is ridiculous. I was like, oh, shit. So I went on and I played full set, you know. And then Laurent comes on and I'm looking at Laurent and I'm like, as excited as I am to meet him, I feel bad that this is what he's going to have to 
play on. You know, this is ridiculous, embarrassing. So he goes and he plays, no problem. <laughs> and I was like, damn. You know, I said, how did you play with no monitors? And he said, how did you play with no monitors? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, damn, he's got a skill. Right. Played an amazing set, yeah. Yeah, he's an awesome DJ. Yeah, and that was it from there. Met him. Uh, he was telling, you know, a few people. He's like, yeah, I need to talk to this guy. And we had dinner a day or two later, and he just broke it down. And he said, yeah, I think you need to come to Europe. You can uh, definitely make a living doing this. Yeah, awesome. Okay, we, 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 let, let me jump ahead a little bit. I want to stick stick uh, um, on this right, really early period for just for a moment. I wanted to ask you about like what the scene was like, the kind of wider scene in Detroit was like at that point at that point obviously we talked about you know music institute from 88 um we're a couple of years later i said well i think um with the Laurent garnier i think we're kind of mid-90s right so what was detroit like as a kind of as a kind of yeah in a, as a music scene and yeah in particular sort of dancing in in this kind of era um it was amazing i mean i'd say the early 90s late 80s early 90s I mean, phenomenal. You had a huge gay scene where there would be, like, the more, uh, I'm going to say, circuit type of music, you know, or more commercial with, like, Whitney Houston remixes and all that. Uh, Menjo's. And then you had Heaven was super underground. Heaven was all about underground house, Chicago house, Detroit house. I mean, even they would have, like, performances and that was like magic ken collier was in there just running things and then you had uh the majestic on friday nights blake baxter was resident and that was a must you know our we had a special uh schedule like okay friday night we gotta go see blake baxter and then you know we would we would go to the mi late night on saturdays we could go to the shelter uh on Friday or Saturday. Friday was usually the hip-hop night on the main floor, St. Andrew's Hall, with DJ House Shoes. And it was just nuts. I mean, it was always something to do and somewhere to go. You had, uh, what else did you have? Of course, the MI. But you had, you know, regular clubs, too. And then it branched out to, like, Pontiac with Industry and... Um, there were a couple of clubs like right down the street from industry. So it was booming. And then you would have on top of that, the warehouse parties. So you would have, yeah, you had like smaller clubs too, that weren't necessarily known for being a club, but they had special nights like club two, four, six, you know, it was a house night. That was like a staple that lasted forever in Detroit, like forever, you know? I mean, it was just certain things that were institutions and then the scene grew. It grew into the warehouse parties. And then it actually went back into the the clubs because a lot of the club owners were getting upset because they thought these parties were taking away their, you know, the people who would come to the clubs. And it really wasn't. It was a younger crowd. It wasn't a lot of drinkers, you know. But they yeah, the warehouse parties, you mean? Yeah. And, and the, so was that was that was that were they uh, was the kind of music a little bit harder on that kind of vibe those kinds of things. So the music started to get harder, and what happened was you had this contingent, which was basically like uh, Richie Houghton and John Acaviva would come down from Canada, 
because it was five minutes away from Detroit, you know, across the bridge or in the tunnel, and started doing parties in Detroit, you know, doing these raves. And it turned out to be less and less parties thrown by black people because they started to travel around, like Juan, Kevin, Derek. You know, they were traveling a lot. And you are as always in Detroit, but they wouldn't throw parties that often. So it was very rare, you know, like maybe once a year, if not, you know, at the most twice a year, you, you get a party at, you know, Submerge or for you are. And so the divide started to come where it was more of a, is it house or is it techno party? So now that what we considered techno to begin with wasn't really what they were playing at the warehouse parties. You know what I mean? It was harder stuff and it was, you know, faster. So now you have a bigger divide and then you have the suburban kids coming in. And now the black people who are, you know, staples, the ones in Detroit were like, I'm not trying to go to this warehouse with a bunch of white kids and sniff, you know, and suck on balloons. You know, it was a whole different cultural thing. You had black people who wanted to drink a drink, you know, and then you had some white kids from the suburbs who wanted to huff a balloon. Right. So it was a whole different dynamic, man. It was tough to get these worlds together. And a lot of people tried. You know, a lot of people tried to make it happen. I mean, Kevin used to throw parties. Uh, like I said, the UR, the submerged parties would happen. Um, it was just difficult. It just kind of split the scene right in two for the most part. Right. And that's kind of been this, that's been the story of the music kind of ever since, right? Yeah. You know, and it it's painful because of what, you know, growing up with it and seeing and experiencing it firsthand of knowing what it should be as opposed to what it is, you know, like I always tell people and they're like, what do you think of, of the Detroit scene? And as I said, well, you know, the most disappointing thing to me is that we don't own anything. Like very few Detroit artists own a restaurant or own a club, you know? not a techno club. I know Godfather owns a lot of spots that are dope, you know, but I mean, it's like an underground techno club. And the reason why is because the scene is so different now that I don't think a, a underground techno club in Detroit would be able to survive on a weekly basis, you know, because the scene has become this, this, this big different thing. You know what I mean? It's a social media thing. It's a, uh, a commercial thing you know it's big business now it's less of an art form and more of a business so yeah i mean that kind of i mean as, as we were saying at the start or near, near the start i mean that's sort of a reflection of, of i guess the dance scene as a whole i mean techno is definitely at the kind of bleeding edge of it but i mean it's a reflection of, of what it's gone i mean as, as what you were as you were describing that um the sort of development of the Detroit Techno scene, what it really reminded me of actually was the way the, like, the jungle drum and bass scene developed in London. So like the early the early years of it were very, I mean, it was, I mean, it was very racially mixed at the start, but like as the kind of like harder drum and bass sound developed, it became much more of a kind of white suburban kids kind of a thing. Um, and it was only, it was actually a pretty similar time period, only a few years later, actually. But I guess... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, what we were talking about earlier about, you know, kids of a certain background coming into a, a certain, you know, musical environment and you know, bringing their baggage with them. And it's not always great for 
the music, is it really? I mean, let's be honest. No. I know. It, 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 yeah. I mean, I hate to, to speak ill of people or speak down on them. But, I mean, you have opportunists everywhere. You know, so of course, in the in the realm of techno and house and of DJing, etc., you're gonna have opportunists. You have people who want to be famous. They want to be popular. They want to be famous. If you took that away, if you told them every time you play, you, no one can see you. If you told them that they can't jump around behind the decks, then like half of the people who do it would leave. They'd stop. We're not gonna film you. Then they'd be like, oh, what's the point? You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, I know a lot of I I know a lot of artists. I guarantee you, they would just they would stop if they weren't going to be filmed. If they if the people in the crowd couldn't see them, imagine going to a party where you could just hear the DJs. Yeah, would you <laughs> would you know who's playing? That's what I mean by selectors and people who can beat match and they do that for twelve years, you know, or six years or whatever. Okay, put them all behind the curtain and then not even let the crowd see him just hear him how can you distinguish who is who like who stands out who has a style you know what i mean i know what jeff sounds like i know what moody man sounds like i know what stingray sounds like you know detroit in effect godfather you know it's just would you know of, of all these techno djs that you worship and pay your hard-earned money for and stand in line for hours would you even know what they sound like if you couldn't see them yeah okay so uh the night with Laurent Garnier, at, at that point, you had become established as a, as a DJ, certainly in the city. Um, had you been playing out much outside of the immediate environment? No, just, just in the US, just mostly in the US. I had played, uh, I did one trip, uh, thanks to Matt Mike introduced me to these promoters from Japan. I went one trip to Japan. Oh, really? Okay. And one trip, I think it was one trip to the UK prior to play this club, uh, Voyager at the Complex. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Way back. And um, so that was, those were my only two outside of the US, but everything was pretty local up until that point. Mm. So, I mean, did you at that, at that point have an idea that you wanted to do this? for a living like was it a, was it a really serious thing in your head in terms of something that you kind of building into your future no not at all not at all and i'm trying to remember back i have to think of the dates but it might have been around the same time like laurent knew i was coming for the first time in the uk and he added the the date in paris onto it i think is what happened so the first time yeah no i never knew honestly because in detroit it's a very competitive atmosphere so it's not like DJs would go over to Europe. And there were, at the time, because this is a long time ago, there were very few, compared to now, where everybody can go play anywhere, there were very few DJs who would go to Europe. You know, I would say there was probably from Detroit that I knew of, like, that I knew, like maybe 10. Not even, you know, definitely less than 15 that would go to Europe on the regular, you know? And it's not like these these guys will come back and say, yeah, you know, it was amazing. Oh, man, Europe is off the chain. No, they might downplay it. The, <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> and I got a feeling that it was mainly because they didn't want anyone else to be able to want to go <laughs> okay. over there. Right, sure. You know, sure. so Detroit's not the big happy family everybody thinks it is. 
You know, we love each other. We, you know, respect each other for the most part. There's still beef, you know, internal beef all the time. But it's one of those situations like you're not really as cool as people think. But if you are outside Detroit and somebody was messing with somebody from Detroit, you immediately got their back. You know what I mean? Right. Sure. It's like a family sure. member, you know. But when you're home, you're not necessarily as close as people think, like one big happy family. Yeah, they didn't come back and brag about it. Yeah, they didn't want everybody else to be like, oh, shit, I'm going to try and go to Europe. So Laurent told me, and I was like, are you serious? You know, <laughs> I, I, I really didn't know the extent of how how it worked, you know, until then. Yeah. Was the show in Paris at Rex? Yep. It was, he brought me over and had me headline at the Rex. He opened for me. I was in shock. Because <laughs> yeah, I couldn't okay. believe it. He was like, yeah, I'm, he's like, put me in the green room. And he goes, okay, if you need anything, you talk to him. You know, we're all set. I got to go play. And I was like, you got to go play. He's like, yeah, man. He's like, you're the headliner. He's like, I'm opening. He's like, just enjoy yourself. I was like, oh, my God. So I'm just chilling, you know, and then I come out to see him play, you know, like the last half of his set. And it's just a madhouse. Yeah, it was just it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. The, what what year did. are we in here? What year oh. are we in? This had to be 96, 97. Right. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I think it was. And, you know, he, when I met him, when I, when I spoke to him in Detroit, he said it. He was like, I don't think they've seen anything like you in Europe since Jeff Mills. He's like, you should come to Europe and play. I'll, I'll, he's like, give me, give me about three months and then I'll see what I can do. And then I got a fax through and he was like, you know, are you coming to play? And I said, I think I'm playing in London. I think, you know, through. and he was like, well, I want you to come play at the Rex. I'm going to arrange everything. We're going to take care of your flight. We're going to take care of your hotel. We're going to pay you this much. I was like, what? <laughs> I was, I was in shock. I was like, Oh man. Yeah. That's a good phone call. Right. And then he, he sure enough, you know, he met me in London actually, cause he was there to do a, uh, that's how I can find out what exactly what year it was. Cause he invited me to uh, a, a press party. Cause back then I guess they had press parties for his album. He did an album and it was titled 30. Right. Yeah. I think and it's 96. That was it then. And it was due to come out and I had done Gushki and London. And then I stayed in London and he was like, I'm going to be there. I want you to come to this uh, press party. And, uh, he sent his manager to come meet me and then we went showed up at the thing and he was like introducing me to all the people from the magazines and all these other people and he took me over to the table where there's a bunch of snacks and food and he goes look man look i i, I remembered and i looked and i was like oh my god he had a big plate of buffalo wings <laughs> because i talked to him and i took him to sweetwater tavern in detroit and I was like, these are the best wings I've ever had. And he was like, I got your favorite. I got your favorite. I made sure they had it. I was like, man, you're the best. All right. Okay. He is. And then I went and just, you know, just socialized with all these people. And he's like, okay. He's like, I got to go first thing in the morning and fly back to Paris. He goes, but I got you on a train. And then he's like, I got you on the Eurostar. And I'm, I'm going to meet you at the station. I'll pick you up. He's like, I got to get back early, though, to do some stuff. I was like, all right. Sure enough, I go on the train, I arrive, and Laurent's there to pick me up, like, personally. So 
and it's later in the evening. So he's like, I got to hurry up, you know, because we got to get this and get this. And so he's driving me around. He's like, I know you're not here for a long time, but I want to show you. So he's driving me around the Arc de Triomphe. Okay. <laughs> so I get this tour in the car and he's like, this is the Arc de Triomphe. And he goes, this is the Eiffel Tower. And I'm like, this is crazy. So then we go straight to the radio station because he was doing his uh, show. I think it was Radio Nova. And uh, he brings me on, and then he has me do, like, an interview. And he's telling people over the air, he goes, I've played Detroit music for a long time, and I represent Detroit, but if you want to hear real Detroit, you'll come tonight and see DJ Bone. (laughs) And I'm like, this is bananas. So now we leave there, we go eat, and uh, at the time, I was, like, a health fanatic. Like, I was eating, like, steamed chicken and vegetables and working out every day. So we get to the restaurant, and he's like, what do you want? And I look, and I said, do they have any, like, steamed vegetables? And he's like, what? He's like, you're in France. He's like, your first time in France. There's no way. He's like, I brought you to this. This this is a Michelin star chef. He's like, I'm going to order. I'm just going to order. So he ordered all the classics. Coco Vin, Cote de Bouffe. Right. Just the uh, light stuff, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, this is crazy. So I eat this food, and I'm like, okay. And I honestly, I, I swear, I have been out of shape since that day. <laughs> since that day in 1996. Fault. Because of that amazing French food <laughs> that Laurent took me to this restaurant. No. But then we went and we had to drop my stuff at the hotel and then quickly go to the club. It was a whirlwind of, you know, just back and forth. And, yeah, and I'll never forget it. You know, I for the, the remainder of my life, you know, he's the catalyst that... that put the idea in my head and actually put it in motion that this is my career how was the actual you know? how was the actual show oh my god so we get to the club they hadn't even opened the doors yet and there's a line down the street around around the corner and we had to go in through this other entrance and i'm like whoa this is crazy he's like all oh, these people are here to see you like, <laughs> no, yeah, no here- pressure right <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm like they're here to see you bro this is your you know what i mean so then when i come out He's still playing, and I go into the booth for the first time. It's enclosed in glass, right? You know the Rex Club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've played that, yeah. yeah. And it had the monitors up top, just, you know, perfect position. And it was Airco. And I was like, this is definitely <laughs> cheating. It has air conditioning <laughs> in the booth. I had never experienced that in my life. So we went from no monitors to this, you know? And then people come up to the booth and they're trying to get in. They have security and then they talk to Laurent. Laurent would give them a nod like yes or shake his head. So there were like these models showing up (laughs) and then he was smiling from ear to ear. And then they're like, nope, they're here to see Bone. And he goes, you bastard. (laughs) It was so funny. And this model, she's like, I I have to fly tonight, a late, late flight to do, um, to work tomorrow. She goes, but I had to come by and see and meet you because I heard you on Laurent's show and I just love what you were saying. And I think it's so unique and different. And Laurent's just looking at me like, holy shit. (laughs) Then the next person who comes up is, uh, what's his name? Thomas Bangalter from uh, Daft Punk. So half of Daft Punk is there. (laughs) Then this guy, Frederic, comes up and introduces himself. He's like, I'm Jeff Mills' manager, blah, blah, blah. I was like, this is, what is going on? Manu Milan, all these other people were there. I was like, this is just 
so then I go to play and I mix the first like three or four records without headphones. Right. Just to just to mess with Laurent. And he just shook his head. <laughs> he was like, you're crazy, man. And I said, this because I told him, I said, this booth, man, this is like cheating. He goes, no, it's a proper booth. I said, proper. I said, in Detroit, you know. He said, I know, I know. <laughs> He's like, but it's still, it's not perfect. So that's when I just mixed the first three or four records with no headphones. He was just shaking his head. I said, this booth is perfect. And it was packed. It was just an amazing, amazing experience. And I came back home after that and never looked back. I said, this is, this is my job now. This is my career. You know, yeah, I stopped school. I quit uh, working. I was working as a bartender. I was going to school. I stopped both. And then as soon as I got like my next bookings, I stopped both. I was done. Wow. And, and I just started traveling. And then it was all word of mouth. It was all word of mouth bookings and opportunities. And then I got with the agency. And that was it. That was really cool. Yeah. Okay. So. We're sort of late nineties then, and sort of going into that kind of early two thousands period, and this is um, an era where like the music changed quite a lot. Generally speaking, I mean, I mean, obviously Detroit's uh, yeah a sound of its own and has kind of always had a certain aesthetic to it. But like, how are that? How are those like over the? I mean, just just talking a little bit more generally now, you know, between then and now, like those kind of like shifts in music, like how much of that? has affected what you do i mean obviously we, you know we've talked about how um you know creativity stalled a little bit in the last few years but like there you were know, 2000s some really interesting stuff happened in in music in in this area of music in particular so like i mean how how have you how has that affected you and how you play and you know all that it's never really to be honest uh totally honest it's never really affected me what happens is <clears throat> excuse me what usually happens with me is I just play what I like, you know? Now, if a trend comes along, like when the, the I call it like a giddy-up techno or like when Prime had all those labels, Prime Distribution, and it was Prime 8, Primeval, Jericho, um, the early uh, drum code stuff, you know, when it was really like, giddy up techno in a good way you know i i was really liking that sound like the drums of it and the drive and the swing you know it was really good so i've always just played whatever i like always i've never played the new minimal sound i've never played a tech house i have never played trance i've never played uh this bang bang techno whatever <laughs> <laughs> whatever comes is a trend i i just I immediately either want to do the opposite or try and do something extremely different, you know, to make sure that I'm not seen as caught up in this trend. And it's always it's always a detriment, to be honest, because the bookings get to be less, you know, and because everybody's trying to book a certain sound. But what I actually did is I remember when the new minimal craze came around with minus and all that, I actually stopped i just wouldn't go out and play i was kind of on strike you know i was like if this is what everybody's listening to and this is what the scene has become i'm um i just would rather not go and play because i'm not going to be that i would never be that and i just stopped playing out for a long time and i just enjoyed kicking it with my family and making music at home and 
you know, I was lucky enough to have the luxury to not have to go out and play. And, you know, after it started to die off a little bit or when people started checking around again for me, like, oh, yeah, is Bone still, you know, playing out or what? I'm like, okay, looks like this is starting to die down. So now I can come back and do oh my, my thing. But I never adjust. I never do. Mm-mm. That's just me, you know, and I see it all the time. Like, my thing is, like, right now, what, all these Bang Bang DJs, the the new young ones, the TikTok ones, and <laughs> and the established ones who decided that they were going to start playing that style, what are they going to do when the... Yeah, we can all see, we can all see those guys, right? You, we all know who You they see are. them, right? <laughs> like, you know how they used to play, and all of a sudden, they're doing this 160 BPM and dancing and dancing back and forth, left, right, left, right, left, right. So what happens when this is not the trend anymore? Are they going to try and crawl back to, like, Detroit style? Or are they going to try and... You know what I mean? It starts to look a little suspect when you have to keep changing your style. That's the way I, I see it. Just be yourself and be known for that and be proud of it. And take what comes with it. You know, good times, bad times. You know, that's all. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay. Um, tell me about moving to Europe because I mean, as you mentioned, yeah, you know, you started traveling internationally at the end of the '90s and, or yeah, mid to late '90s, and obviously, um, you were you were busy in the period in between uh, then and actually moving over. So, like, how much of a well, I mean, how much of a big decision was it? I mean, certainly when I've I've lived in a few different countries and often it just happens sort of like, you know, just because I feel like it and it's not some huge thing. But like, what was it like for you? It was, uh, it was probably uh, a really planned, a really calculated thing, uh, I'd have to say. And it came out of, um, for the most part, it came out of when I started to get a little older, I enjoyed flying less and less, you know? Because at one point, I was doing three transatlantic flights a month, you know, round trip. And it's just a lot. When you're young, you're like, ooh, I'm a millionaire. I'm making all the miles. I'm, you know, (laughs) I'm getting status. But then when you start to think logically, you're like, this isn't really sustainable. You know, it's not smart. It's not cool. So uh, we started to think, okay, maybe we need a hub in Europe, you know, and we have two daughters. We have two daughters, uh, and they're in their 20s. And at the time, we were waiting for them to be old enough because we didn't want to uproot them and move them to Europe. And we didn't want to just leave them, you know, before they were, you know, able to manage on their own. So once they got to that age, we started to look, and we decided on three spots. It was either London, Paris, or Amsterdam. Couldn't do Berlin. It's just not enough soul and then too many DJs live there <laughs> too many it was like a cliche you know move to Berlin so you can get more gigs no it wasn't even about that it was just making it easier for me travel wise and we fell in love with Amsterdam the more we came here the more we loved it you know and then on as a bonus the airport is probably well before last summer the airport was my favorite in the world it was the most efficient the best um, almost everyone speaks English here, so there would be no language barrier. Uh, and the, the quality of life is, is really high, you know. So we looked into it, and we found out from one of our good friends that 
there was a treaty between the U.S. and the Netherlands. We didn't even know about it. And we could actually move here and get temporary residence and have full rights, basically, as a Dutch citizen. The only thing we can't do is vote in the main election. That's it. Right, okay. Huh, I didn't know that. And, and it's through the treaty they have with the U.S. You just have to go through a certain amount of uh, uh, formalities, you know, as far as registering a business and getting insurance, opening a bank account, having a, a, a home here. And after that, you know, temporary residence, you know, and then you renew it every five years. And now we're to the point where after seven years, we are eligible to get permanent residence. Right. Okay. Which is really cool. And it cut down on my travel time, <laughs> you know. Yeah. We love it here and it cut down my travel time. So, I'm, you know, we're really happy. We're really happy with it being here. Yeah, how much of music moving to Amsterdam was like a music decision specifically? I mean, talk about travel, but like, how much was the like the scene in the city uh, a significant thing? Wanted to move there. It's funny because I didn't really consider the scene. To be honest, you know, I if it was about the scene, that would have been more reason to to look at London harder because at the time I really liked the London scene. You know, Amsterdam scene for me was majority. Uh, basically ADE and festivals, you know, is what I saw. And I wasn't really uh, participating in most of those anyway, you know. But the cool thing is that moving here it ended up giving me the opportunity to do further, you know, the sit-down and now the club night, which really, you know, is, is a good blessing in disguise, you know. But we didn't. I didn't really concentrate on the scene at all. It was just purely you know where would i like to live you know how do i feel do i feel comfortable would, be, would it be nice you know yeah so we tried it out a few times you know like a month at a time then we came back three months and then that was it we're like yeah i think it's the place yeah, yeah fair enough i mean amsterdam is great i have to say yeah oh man yeah high quality of life for sure well listen man this has been great i've got one more and um my last question is uh it's not even a question really just Tell me about your back-to-back thing with Goldie, because that sounds like it was probably quite eventful. <laughs> it was hilarious, man. So basically, um, I've known Goldie for a long time, but we, we're not super close when it comes to knowing each other until the back-to-back. So it's like we would see each other and there's mutual respect and we'd stop and catch up. And it's usually on the road. It's not like, you know, I'm in town, let's meet for dinner or... It's usually an artist dinner or, you know, something like that. And it was funny because uh, we had been contacted by his manager, you know, contacted on. I was like, yeah, um, Goldie wants to know uh, if we sh- if uh, we could pursue getting him and Bone together to do something. I think we need to get him together for a project. So she thought it was just the manager's idea, you know and didn't think you know much of it and then was like okay you know whenever you come up with something let me know you know cool and then he's like okay and he kept messaging her messaging her yeah we need to get bone and goldie together which should be really cool it'd be really cool maybe in a studio or something like that and and it went on for like a year and then she was just like this guy's just talking nonsense you know so i don't know why <laughs> and it was so weird and then one day i get a message on instagram it's from goldie and he's like, yo, it's G, what's your number, man? Give me your number. 
So I gave it to him. He called me. He was like, yeah. He's like, the scene is kind of fucked up right now, bro. He's like, we need to shake this shit up. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what the fuck? I said, all this time, you know, you're serious about it. He goes, yeah, man. Yeah. He's like, I just, you know, it's just timing and all that. He's like, but I'm ready, man. I'm ready. He's like, let's do something. He's like, what should we do? Should we do a project in the studio? You know, because he moved to Thailand. He said, maybe you can come out to Thailand or something, or we can get together. And I was like, that would be dope. I said, but we need something more immediate. You know, he goes, what about back-to-back, you know, we can do? And I said, that's perfect. You know, because we were going to start further, like, the club night. And I was like, we could do it at further, you know, because he only would leave Thailand maybe twice a year or three times a year to tour. So we'd have to plan it really well. And then... We said, okay, let's do it back-to-back. So we were just talking for a while, like an hour. And then after I got the phone with him, I told Anna, and then she told my booking agent. And my booking agent was in contact with his manager. And they were like, okay, we know you guys want to do it at further, but we're gonna just going to test the waters and see if there's any, like, really big venue maybe we could get, you know, to do this special night. So they put the feelers out, and they got all this response back from all these different venues and promoters. So now they're like, um, we need a meeting because we think this is going to turn into a tour. <laughs> we're like, we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it's funny because Goldie was kind of adamant with his management, you know, and his management was leery, like, cause you know, they're like, we haven't seen bone like with Goldie before. We haven't seen him talk to bone before. So how close can they be that Goldie wants to really <laughs> do this tour? You know, right. they're thinking he's like on some, some weird tip you know so we arranged to have this photo shoot in london we did it at fabric actually and we were like we need to get you know together to show that unity and do a photo shoot so we can promote the tour and as soon as he walked in and his manager saw how we interacted and we started talking and catching up he turned it on he goes ah now i get it it's like i see now i see why he kept saying bone he's like he kept telling me bone's the only guy man He's like, from Detroit, he's like, you know, he's like, I love my Detroit brothers. I love my Detroit brothers, but Bone is the guy. He's the one. Because, and he told me, he's like, you know, I don't have drama attached to me. I'm I'm very upfront. I got skills, you know. He just said it. He was like, this is why I want to work with you. So when we did it, we started, they started, we left it to the, you know, our managers and agents. And they started booking up everything. And it turned into this really nice tour. I think we did nine or ten different dates. And we never planned, we planned the day we met for the photo shoot, we planned everything. And all we said was, it's about us playing exactly what the fuck we want to play and feeling the energy and bringing a whole new vibe to these people. And that was it. (laughs) That was it, bro. You know, and we even had them, we had them at a date for the uh, further here in Amsterdam. It was crazy, you know? That's it. I mean, it's just all about that. It's about, you know, I have to speak on further a little bit, but it's it's about bringing things, you know, forward and, and more into the future if you can. But also making people understand the roots of this and what a vibe is. You know, it's about the whole night. It's about the journey. And we don't want you to think it's like a movie where you have to wait for this great big ending and it's slow all the way through it's just like non-stop action the last one we had was amazing it was me and ben sims back to back uh ben did a 
Ron Bacardi sat on top of that in the other room, Will Clark, and Helena Hoff. And the one before that was me, Moody Man, Stingray, and Detroit in Effect. You know, it's just these crazy, unimaginable lineups. You know, the other one was me and Laurent all night. It's just those things to have Laurent in a room that can only hold 750 people and play a four-hour set. I mean, you know, that's what it's about. So I, I just appreciate, you know, you having me on to you know, talk about my history and talk about my future. I think that's, it's really cool because I feel like a lot of times I'm, I got one foot in each, you know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, listen, man, this has been, yeah, this has been awesome. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, man. Yeah, that was DJ Bone. What a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Good long one. Great to get stuck in to some of those really meaty issues in a meaningful way. He's got such an entertaining turn of phrase, actually. I really enjoyed listening to him talk. And um, yeah, it was great to get some of those Detroit stories, the really early Detroit stories, because we haven't had that at all, really, on the show before. Like, Detroit gets talked about in the abstract quite a lot. And I've kind of talked down like the Detroit club scene, I think, from a, you know, from some received wisdom there. So it was great to be able to get some real kind of technicolor pictures of it from someone who was actually on the ground at the time and sounds like it was pretty awesome actually so yeah just a a really useful and interesting and just a kind of conversation i like having really so this was a great one i told you it was going to be a great one last week and it is a great one it was a great one i think you'll agree right okay if you want to support the show, as I mentioned at the top, you can do so on Patreon. That would be really nice of you. Patreon.com slash scuba official. There's plenty of regular bonus stuff that goes up. So if you want to get involved, that's the place to do it. It is cheap. So yeah, do it. Feel free to add us to your list of subscriptions that you're paying every month. It's, um, I mean, yeah, the cheap one's only four bucks a month. That is cheap. That's unambiguously cheap. Okay. Uh, yeah. Join us in the Discord, hotfoshercorners.com slash Discord. You don't have to be a Patreon member to get in there. You can just come in, whatever, say hello. Follow the Spotify playlist. And if you're not going to do Patreon, then do leave us a review or a rating. It really does help. I'm not just saying that. It does genuinely help. It helps me uh, judge our podcast against other podcasts, which is the most important thing, right? We need to know that we're better than other podcasts. That's that's just key to uh, <laughs> keeping the show on the road here. Anyway, I'm going to shut up. This has gone on for too long already. So I will see you back here, same time, same place next week if I don't see you on a uh, bonus podcast because you decided to join the Patreon. I will see you next week for the next episode of a Not Diving Podcast. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.